Beyond Radley. Business, careers, and more. Virtual talks by experts from our community. Good afternoon and a warm welcome to all members of the Radley community and to our school partners who've joined us today on Zoom. My name is Caroline Monaghan and I'm responsible for our Beyond Radley Career Speaker Programme, a series of talks designed to give you a live insight into the world of work. Our speaker today is going to talk to you about what he did immediately after he left school as he didn't go straight to university and tell you about how he worked out that he wanted to work for a charity, a career which he now finds hugely challenging, rewarding and fulfilling. Theo currently works for the David Shepherd Wildlife Foundation, an environmental charity, and manages a portfolio of 17 ground-based wildlife conservation projects in Africa and Asia, whilst also leading their policy work, which focuses on influencing the international policy agenda on biological diversity and wildlife trade. So without further ado, over to you, Theo. Thank you, Caroline, and uh, thank you for having me on this Beyond uh, Radley talk today. Um, it's obviously always difficult doing these things online rather than in person. Um, so I want to keep this as kind of um, interactive and informal as possible. So please do just kind of cut in, ask questions um, as and when you please. Um, I also thought kind of quite long and hard um, about the structure and uh, what I was going to talk about today. Um, but what I really wanted to highlight um, was that there isn't one solution or one way of doing things when it comes to your career path and your kind of career ambitions. Um, and when I was at school, it was kind of not necessarily through Radley, but it was always drilled into me that you go to school, you leave school, you go to university, you find a job, um, and that is the traditional structure. And that if you don't go to university, you've missed your chance. Um, and it took me quite a long time to kind of come to terms with the fact that that is not the case. Um, so that was kind of the angle that I'm going to structure this uh, talk in today. So firstly, as um, Caroline's already alluded to, um, I work for a small non-governmental organisation um, called the David Shepherd Wildlife Foundation. It's a uh, conservation organisation working to safeguard wildlife um, and trying to safeguard it for future generations. And I'm going to spend some time talking about the organisation itself um, what I do, and then also the kind of the path that led me uh, to working here. Um, I'm going to start with a brief video, um, which I will hand over, which is going to be played. Um, but before I did that, I just wanted to kind of um, highlight a couple of really key statistics. Um, so the first is that um, it was a report which came out in 2019 um, by the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. This is quite a lengthy title, it's uh, known as ITBES, but it, uh, it stated that a million species are threatened with extinction. Um, the second was a report by WWF, which came out in 2020, um, uh, the World Wildlife Fund, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. And this report noted that the population, population sizes of mammals, birds, fish, amphibians, and reptiles have seen an alarming drop um, of 68% since 1970. Um, what is most terrifying about both of these, uh, these statistics um, is that they are anthropogenic in nature. Um, so in a kind of less technical term, they are human induced. Um, they are caused by human activities such as land degradation, such as climate change, um, such as agricultural expansion. And this is what makes the, the third point here probably the, the kind of the most scary, which is since 1960, 
our population has doubled and will rise by 50% uh, by 2050. So in short, um, if we're going to coexist with nature and live within our own planetary boundaries, we're going to need to fundamentally shift um, our dysfunctional relationship with nature. So before I go on to talk a little bit more about the organization that I work for and what I do, um, I've got a quick video which I'm hoping to play. Um, so I'm just gonna unshare my screen and get it shared elsewhere. Um, and hopefully it's gonna work. David Shepherd Wildlife Foundation was set up to conserve wildlife in their natural habitat. So we take a holistic approach to conservation. So that means most of the work that we do has to have a number of elements. So the main one is law enforcement, park protection and anti-poaching being the main part. Education is a key part of what we do and also community outreach. These animals deserve a better fate than to be killed for their ivory. cocaine, even diamonds, the coveted horn of the endangered rhino. We very much believe that conservation is a long game. Um, it's very important to invest in key projects and make sure that they have a sustainable future. It's safe to say that everyone in the organization has a fantastic ethos that was built from the legacy that my grandfather set up. So a key part of our DNA is wanting to give back to the wildlife that we are very privileged to be able to see on a daily basis. So one of granddad's key messages was he felt he owed a debt to wildlife for the success that he was owed through his painting career. So it's incredibly lucky for us that we are able to continue that work and with the same passion and dedication that, that he first started the organization. The biggest thing, understanding that I've got from this trip is that without having the communities on boards, the poaching problem won't be relieved. So we have to go in and educate. We have to empower those people and those communities and for those adults to pass that on to their children and their children's children to actually resolve this issue. The 
The second main objective of the Community Outreach Department is to introduce alternative sustainable livelihoods to those communities living on the borders of national parks so that they're not forced into illegal wildlife activity. Um, and we do most of that through women's empowerment in Zambia. inspire people to love something like wildlife like elephants rhinos whatever it is then they want to learn about it and if they learn about it then they'll look to find out how they can make sure that it, it means something in the future that it is here for our children and our children's children now and if we don't create those vital funds to make that change my children and your children's children won't grow up with this incredible landscape the incredible wildlife that we see now it won't happen and I feel very strongly about making that change and I hope you'll support us in that reached a period now when if we don't get it done mighty quick tomorrow it'll be too late. Um, so I hope that you um, that kind of video gave you a brief insight into uh, some of the work that we do. Um, my job is split into two core sections, um, so programs and policy. With regards to the former, um, I manage our conservation portfolio of 16 conservation projects across uh, 14 countries, working to protect eight flagship species. Uh, so those species are elephants, pangolins, tigers, painted dogs, snow leopards, lions, chimpanzees, and rhinos. Um, I know that there's some discrepancy in the numbers from the film, but that film was, uh, was created a couple of years ago. Um, and as an organization, we believe in a holistic approach to conservation. Uh, so what that means is that we don't believe that there is a single solution into protecting wildlife. Um, we need to work across a range of initiatives. Um, as such, we've split uh, all of our work into three core categories. Uh, which we kind of conceptualize under fight, protect, and engage. So the first is fighting wildlife crime. We do this through undercover investigations into the illegal wildlife trade um, and through our international policy work, which I'm going to talk about um, in a minute. The second core part of our work is protecting wildlife. Um, we do this through funding boots on the ground, so anti-poaching initiatives, the rescue, rehabilitation, and release of uh, wildlife. Um, and through extensive scientific research. And the third is through engagement, um, which you saw a lot of in the video. And we do this through giving local communities um, who live neighboring wildlife habitats uh, the tools to coexist with wildlife. 
Um, the other part of it is working in demand uh, countries um, to dispel the myths associated with consumption um, of wildlife. So, for example, um, in Zambia, we do a lot of work around the Kanfui National Park, um, and we don't believe it's just having boots on the ground and people with guns disincentivizing people to go into the park. We also need to work with people who are poaching wildlife to give them alternative means of income, um, but also be working with, uh, with communities in uh, China and Asia who are demanding um, wildlife products um, to actually educate them on the myths behind the use of these products. So it's very much a kind of a holistic approach that we take and we can't have just one size fits all. So the second major part of my work is uh, engaging in, in the international policy arena uh, to fight for the toughest protectionist policies for wildlife. So the first major part of my job is working under something called CITES. So CITES is the Convention on the International Trade of Endangered Species. Um, for those who aren't aware, a convention is an international agreement um, between countries. Uh, so CITES uh, is signed by 183 different countries around the world um, who all follow its mandate. My main focus under this international agreement, um, which falls under the United Nations, is closing down ivory markets and preventing the live trade of elephants outside their natural range. But CITES has a huge mandate of, uh, of different fauna and flora which are listed on it. So the second major part of my work is engaging in uh, what's called CBD, the Convention on the Biological on Biological Diversity. Um, this convention is signed by 196 countries around the world, um, and it's a conservation agreement which focuses on the sustainable utilization of biodiversity. So what I do here is um, I work with a number of different organizations uh, to highlight the links between biodiversity loss and wildlife trade. And the final growing area of my work is on wildlife trade and pandemics. Um, this is very much a new area which, is, um, which has been growing in light of COVID-19. Um, and the body of work I, which I'm embedded is, um, is trying to embed something into the international legal system, which acknowledges the intrinsic link between wildlife trade and pandemics and its subsequent biodiversity loss. Um, it's something that this whole area is um, kind of a long one to explain and describe. So if anyone has any more kind of specific questions about it, I'm more than happy to go into it in depth in the Q&A. So now that I've given you a very quick snapshot into kind of uh, the organization that I currently work for um, and what my job role entails, I just wanted to give you a bit of background um, on how I actually got here. So I left Radley in 2012. Um, and like a lot of people, I decided to take a gap year. Um, I'd been at boarding school since the age of eight, uh, and there was something that just didn't seem quite right about going straight to university, especially that personally, I wasn't that kind of um, keen to study the topics that I had studied and applied for. So during my gap year, I traveled extensively, um, and it was during this point that I decided not to go to university. Um, I had extensive conversation, conversations with, uh, with my family um, and my dad gave me a really good bit of advice, um, you know, back in 2012 or 2013, um, that I should focus on finding out what I wanted to do. And I was really lucky that none of my family had been to university, um, apart from one of my brothers, um, neither of my parents had. Uh, so I think I had less pressure as such than some people. Um, but 
I personally feel that this is something which was never kind of encompassed into any messaging when I was growing up, um, apart from through my family, um, that there was a trajectory that one can work towards outside school, which isn't going straight to university and studying something that you know, you know, not a huge amount about. So for the next few years after my gap year, I traveled quite extensively. Um, I worked in numerous countries, uh, doing numerous jobs. Um, uh, and to a lot of people, I think I probably looked like I was a little bit lost. Um, and quite a lot of the time, I did feel that I was a little bit lost because my contemporaries and my peers were doing a very, very different thing to what I was doing. Um, however, whilst, you know, a lot of my contemporary Radleyans were at university, during that time, I was doing a lot of other things. I lived in South Africa. I spent six months doing a yacht master course. I spent three years living in Spain. Um, I lived in Scotland. Um, and it wasn't until 2017, so what is that, five years after I left Radley, that all of the things that I had been doing and, and searching for amalgamated into kind of one career changing and life changing event. Um, so since leaving school, I had spent 98% of my time outdoors. Um, and nature was something that I was completely in love with. Um, but it wasn't until I watched a documentary in 2016, um, called Virunga, um, which is I'm not sure how many of you have seen it if you haven't it's on Netflix, and it was a huge part of my life this documentary. Um, it provides an overview of the exploitation of oil from a British company in the DRC in the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, and its subsequent impacts on wildlife population, specifically gorillas in the Virunga National Park. And from this documentary um, and many others that I watched, um, I myself and you know, a lot of my friends came in awe of these individuals who are fighting uh, you know, on the ground to protect wildlife. Um, the next photo that I'm gonna show you is uh, a photo of Rianto, who's one of these guys. Um, but one statistic that kept popping up um, kind of in our research was that in the last 10 years, more rangers have died protecting wildlife than British troops did in Afghanistan and Iraq. And that really put something in perspective for me that these kind of unsung heroes who appear in all of these documentaries about wildlife conservation, who never speak, are doing such a fundamentally dangerous job. So this is uh, when cycling for rangers, um, this initiative, which I'm going to talk to you now, this kind of life changing event for me started. So in 2017, uh, myself and three others, uh, two ex Radleyans, um, Charlie Rose and Will Johnston, who were in A Social and H Social, uh, we all decided to cycle 5000 kilometers from Johannesburg to Nairobi through 11 national parks, raising awareness um, through a documentary and raising vital funds for those on the front line um, on the war against poaching. Um, and this really was a kind of career changing point for me in my life. Um, so I have a quick teaser kind of um, of a video, which I'm going to quickly show now, which kind of highlights that trip that we underdid in, um, in 2017. All across Africa, there's a deadly war being fought to protect the world's most iconic endangered animals. It's a conflict that has cost more lives than Britain's war in Afghanistan. Yet people on the front line rarely have their voices heard. I'm like Adam, 
in the Garden of Eden. There should be someone there to take care of this. This is our unsupported five-month journey by bicycle through nine countries and over 8,000 kilometers. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. To raise awareness for anti-poaching rangers and bring their stories with us. My life is after the dogs. Join us as we ride through national parks. Going through a game reserve on a bicycle. Overcome clashes with elephants and brutal terrain. And hear the story of the poaching crisis told by those who really understand. From rangers to poachers. God has planned something for me. To civilians caught in the crossfire. Yeah, it's like war. It's almost like war. This is Cycling for Rangers. So I hope that um, gave you a quick snapshot into this trip, which again, I'm more than happy to kind of go into more depth um, in the Q&A. But what I really wanted to highlight here is that it was this trip um, and the journey that I'd kind of gone through to get to this trip, um, which took my career on into a whole different trajectory. Having seen kind of firsthand the challenges um, facing wildlife across the globe, um, I decided on returning from this trip um, to dedicate my life to the environmental sector. Um, I started working for David Shepherd Wildlife Foundation in 2017. Um, I didn't have a degree at the time. I came in at very much entry level, part time, um, and doing all sorts of different things. But I completely fell in love with the organization and the vision of the organization and slowly found my niche in the policy work, um, which is where I felt that I could make a tangible difference. However much I would have loved working in a national park somewhere in the world, um, this was an area where I actually felt that what I was doing was making a difference. Um, so since then, um, as I've been working kind of more and more with this organization for the last uh, three or four years, um, I then decided to go to university. So alongside work, I undertook a postgraduate uh, certificate in climate change and development um, at the School of Oriental and African Studies, in, um, in, which is part of the University of London. Um, I then also took several months out to complete my master's in environmental law um, and have basically past both of those um, alongside working um, and am still with the organization today. So I'm going to kind of um, conclude uh, now um, by just highlighting one major point. Um, I don't think that going to university straight from school is a bad thing. Um, I absolutely don't. And I think in some cases it is absolutely essential. Um, However, what I fundamentally do believe um, is that there needs to be a shift in mentality, um, that there isn't a singular way of doing something. Um, there are definitely times in my life that I felt like a failure um, and that not going to university straight from school was a hindrance to me. But the reality of the situation actually is that people who go to university later in life, and this is not always the case, but in my experience, are more often than not more often than not, they have a more rewarding and more useful experience having found something that they fundamentally enjoy and want to do. Um, so I'm going to kind of wrap up there and um, bring it to a to a Q and A. Um, Brilliant, thank you. For you. Other questions. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, everyone, please do put any questions you have about any of the thing, the amazing things that Theo's done. Um, onto the chat. Um, I've, I've got a couple of questions that I'd like to um, ask you here, if you don't mind. Um, 
first of all, just get, rewinding back to when you first sort of left Radley, you had your gap year and um, you did your cycling for Rangers in your gap year, I believe. That's right, isn't it? It was actually a few years later so oh, it I'd, was. Okay. I'd worked for about three or four years before that even happened right so in your gap year you traveled a bit did you yeah so I traveled um yeah all over really but spent a lot of time in Asia spent some time in Africa okay brilliant so then you then went on um and you said that you went and found other jobs um in the ensuing years I just wondered how you went about finding finding those opportunities um was it through people that you knew or did you apply for jobs in places like South Africa? I think you mentioned that. How did you go about finding those opportunities and um, just sort of extending yourself to travel to other places and find out what you wanted to do? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really good question. I think it was the honest answer is I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. Um, and I don't think that's a problem. Um, what I did do is I had long conversations with my family about the things that I enjoyed. Um, so one of the one of the big ones was sailing. Um, you know, I mentioned briefly um, earlier that I spent, you know, three years in Spain, but I, in my gap year, I went um, to South Africa for six months and I did a yacht master's qualification, which was something that I purely wanted to do because I love sailing. Um, and that took me to living in Spain for three years, working on sailing yachts. Um, so it was kind of, after leaving school, it was taking that career trajectory slightly out of it and deciding to follow the things that I wanted to do rather than what kind of on paper would look like a job. Um, and what I was really lucky, I feel like in that period of time, was that a, lot of, a lot of my contemporaries, as I've, as I've mentioned, were at university, having a great time and often studying things that they wanted to study, but often not. Um, so that was my substitute. I kind of spent four years traveling, doing jobs that I wanted to do with people that I really liked and learning a lot about the world and kind of steering myself towards where I've ended up, but with no real proper agenda to it. Okay, brilliant. And so when you eventually came to apply for university and you decided that's what you wanted to do, because you were a, a sort of mature student effectively, they're obviously not that, that much older, was that a difficult process? And well, two questions really, was it a difficult process at that stage to then apply for university? And secondly, was it um, very different going to university as a mature student, did you find? Yeah, no, it's a, another really, really good question. And I think when I started out looking at going to university, I was petrified about it because I hadn't studied for, you know, since my A-levels. Um, and I also felt that most of my friends had already gone to university. Um, so there was something that I was very nervous about. Uh, the reality of the situation was I was going in as as a mature student, but what I learned very quickly when I started my course is that my conception of what a mature student was is very different to what the case actually is. And that is a huge amount of people go to university as mature students or what we would conceive as mature students. And going to university when you're 25, when you're 28, when you're 30 is not, a, it's not unheard of at all. So I found that I had a really good group of friends when I went to, to do my, you know, various courses. Um, and I very much didn't feel I was, you know, with people, I was with people who were younger than me, but I was also with people who are older than me. So I think that was a dilemma in my head, not a reality. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. So when you um, decided that you, uh, you wanted to work um, in the environmental arena and that that was the passion that you wanted to pursue, 
how did you go about finding your job at the David Shepherd um, Foundation? And um, yeah, I'm going to ask you two questions again. Sorry, uh, was it quite a competitive? Is it quite a competitive sector to get into? Because I imagine you've got people in, at all at different stages in their lives who decide that they want to try and do something that's not necessarily working for a corporate, something that gives back to the world in a in a in a different way. So, so yes, was it competitive? And how did you go about finding that? Yeah. So. Um... What I did, so again, going back to this, you know, this is where the university thing comes in because I didn't have a degree and I was, what, 25 at the time, um, 24 at the time, and a lot of people did. And I came out at the back end of this trip knowing what I kind of wanted to do, um, but I didn't have the qualifications to do it. So what I did, um, and I think this is something that Radley put me in really good stead to do, was I came back for the trip. I decided that this is what I wanted to do. So I wrote to every single conservation organization that I could find. And I asked them to have a coffee with me, to meet with me, to chat with me, to give me direction. And I had hundreds of conversations um, with different people. And the David Shepherd Wildlife Foundation was an organization that I met with. Um, I got on really well with, I believed in their, their vision and their mission, um, what they were trying to achieve. And I felt that I could bring something to the table. And like I said earlier, I kind of started very much at the beginning and kind of built my way up and I grew with that organization. I grew to where I, if I had gone into that organization thinking that I was going to be working in policy, you know, I don't think anyone around me in my life thought that I was going to go to university or that I was going to work in policy. So I think it was that kind of um, stepping into, into that, yeah, it was a slightly bizarre thing. But in terms of being competitive, yes, it is competitive, but it's no more competitive than anything else. And I think it's about the attitude that you go in with. Um, and I think if you if you really want to work in the environmental sector or you really want to be a banker, there is a way to do it. Um, it doesn't mean you're going to get the first job. And, you know, especially in the job market that we're in at the moment, you know, it's always going to be tricky and there's going to be a lot of no's. Um, and I did get a lot of no's. So, yes, it's competitive, but I don't think it's any more competitive than a lot of other industries. Thank you. And what do you feel are the differences between um, working for a charity or versus working for a corporate? in your view? Oh, that's a really, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so uh, there's no real right thing to do in a job. Um, a lot of people work to make money. That's absolutely fine. I think what I substitute in my job is I want to, in my own small way, give back to the environment. And I fundamentally enjoy that. And I think it's, those are two very, very different things. And I think there is there is a kind of bit in between as well, where you can you know you can enjoy your job and you know and you can make money. But I think those are the fundamental differences is you're working towards a specific purpose, uh, not towards a lifestyle. Um, so those those are there is some ground in between, but I think those are the two the two big kind of differences as such. Absolutely. Thank you. I've got to ask the inevitable um, COVID question. I mean, you mentioned it earlier in your presentation about how um, that, that part of your work with, um, you know, nature and humanity colliding is something that has become obviously because of this global pandemic become an increasing area and workload for you. So how has impact, how has COVID impacted what you're doing in the last year? Uh, so two, twofold. Um, and I, I try not to go on for too long, but one, the obvious, the, fund, the, the fundraising aspect of our work, which I'm less involved in, has, you know, it, we're struggling. 
Uh, we're struggling to get the money in because there has been an economic downturn across the whole globe. And one of the first things which gets reduced is, um, is, is donations. Um, so we're having to work through that. On the other end of the spectrum is this kind of nexus between wildlife trade and pandemics, which has kind of taken up 98% of my work in the last few months. Um, and that is that as we encroach into nature, the likelihood of zoonotic spillover increases. Um, and the very best way um, for a zoonotic or an epidemic or a pandemic with a zoonotic origin to spread is through getting a live animal and putting it into a into a market chain, which is essentially what we're seeing all across the globe. And as we, you know, this is why that statistic around population growth is so terrifying, that as our population grows and we consume more and we we dig further into nature, the chances of zoonotic spillover are increasing and increasing. And, you know, we are going to see, if we do not fundamentally shift um, what we are doing, we're going to see a pandemic every 10 years. Um, and they could be a lot worse than this. Um, so we really have to change the way we interact with nature. And that has become, you know, the forefront of my work, which is working in the international kind of policy um, uh under the kind of the the auspice of international law, environmental law, to embed some of these um, these arguments that the way that we trade animals um, sustainably under you know essentially all that we've done, all the international response has done is throw the word safe and graph the word safe on top of business as usual, and in my personal opinion, um, that's you know not gonna it's not gonna do a lot to to save or stop a future pandemic. Um, so that's kind of how COVID has really taken over the kind of international policy part of our work. And obviously, not only that, it's everything that the wildlife trade um, links to in terms of biodiversity loss. Um, you know, the demand for ivory has historically driven down elephant populations across Africa. The, you know, the demand for pangolin scales for traditional med medicine in Southeast Asia has, you know, 100 million pangolins have been trafficked in the last 10 years. Um, so anyway, in a nutshell, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, no, a, a pretty big impact. Um, so a um, couple of questions coming through on the chat. Environmental policy will take a long time to change, or can take a long time to change. What does success look like for you to keep going in your work? Yeah, so that is an incredible question. And I think this is why, going back to what I was saying around holistic approaches to conservation, policy change takes a long time. Um, changing people's minds takes a long time. Uh, working with communities, neighboring wildlife habitats takes a long time. You know, engaging with consumers in Southeast Asia about the and trying to debunk the myths around medicinal properties of pangolin scales takes a long time. So this is why one needs a holistic approach to conservation. We, we, we have to fundamentally, those are the root causes of the issues. But what we need to do is actually be working on the ground um, buying ourselves time whilst these things change, whilst these and these things do take, like that question insinuated, you know, this takes time. So this is where the kind of more traditional fortress conservation comes in, which is that we fund, you know, as I said, 16 projects um, across the world where we have anti-poaching ranges on the ground, which are very much there to show that people who are coming in to poach, you know, there are consequences to that. Um, so that is buying time whilst things change fingers crossed. Um, however, my personal opinion on it is that that is not a sustainable model. It's it's essential um, to buy ourselves time as we are seeing the biodiversity crisis in the way that it is and how it's ramping up. Um, 
but it's not a sustainable model. So we also need to work in changing international policy. And uh, we also need to work at working with communities who poach, but also working with consumers. Thank you, Thea. Got a, um, I've got a little note from um, Mr. Sparks here. Inspiring stuff, full geography colours. In your opinion, what is the one thing we can do here in the UK that might have the biggest impact on your work overseas? Yeah, another really good, uh, really good question. And I mean, it's from an environmental perspective, um, the biggest impact is changing the way that we eat. Um, but, you know, that is not to say we should cut meat out entirely, um, but it is fundamentally a huge, huge driver of biodiversity loss, which relates in wildlife loss, um, but also climate change. Um, so that that is a big one um changing the way and re-evaluating the way that we eat um but in terms of specifically wildlife what we can do is working with in, in my opinion it's working with governments through you know groups to, to lobby, lobby the international community to actually change our international laws to take into consideration these kind of these big big decisions that need to be made because um, they do funnel that a lot of these international laws, you know, they're not perfect. CITES, as I mentioned, is not a perfect convention. Uh, the UNFCCC, which where the Paris uh, Agreement sits under, it's not a perfect system. Um, however, what these do set is the fundamentals, which then trickles down international law. It takes time, um, but I genuinely believe if we can kind of mobilize and push governments to make decisions, um, that that does have a real lasting impact. Um, but it's time, it's time consuming. It takes, yeah takes a lot of effort. Yeah, it does. And, and your passion um, for this clearly shines through for you. So in terms of you personally, what are you in, in your career so far? What are you most proud of um, in your working life that you've achieved? Um, I guess something that I've been working on, which is like had, so going back to, to David Shepard, Wildlife Foundation, it's, um, it's being able to see like tangible, like it's being able to see change. And I think a massive part of this, and this is a very controversial subject, is around ivory, domestic ivory bans. So the UK in 2018 bringing in its domestic ivory ban, China bringing in its domestic ivory ban, the US bringing in its domestic ivory ban. We're now lobbying in, in the, across the EU. Um, there's a public consultation going on at the moment in the EU around the ivory ban. And we're also working you know, in Japan about trying to push them to do the same thing. And it's when you see, you know, I entered this sector after a lot of work had already been done, but seeing that journey of stuff, this work going on and actually seeing those outcomes where you see the UK close its ivory market, you see the EU trying to close its ivory market, you see China closing its ivory market and the knock-on, the domino effect that has to preserve wildlife is huge. Um, so that, I guess, is something working on on ivory trade bans um, is something that I think I'm pretty proud of because I've been able to see in my lifetime change. Um, and that's why I fundamentally am a bit biased towards the kind of policy interventions, but I genuinely feel that that's where we can have a real impact. That sounds very rewarding. And for you, again, personally, what, what is next for you in your career plan? Do you have a, a sort of a path mapped out or are you going to see where things take you? Um, as always, I'm going to see where things take me. Um, you know, I have lots of ambitions. I, my, um, so my master's thesis was not related to wildlife. I, you know, I've got a huge interest in climate migration. Um, so I did my thesis on, um, 
responsibility sharing associated to climate migration. So who is responsible when people are, their houses are flooded um, and they have to move. So Virabatu, you know, the Maldives, when these, uh, when these places no longer exist, which they won't in 30 years, um, you know, you have entire populations under what remit do they stand? So as it stands under the, um, under the refugee convention, um, unless they are discriminated against, they cannot claim refugee status. So therefore, as it stands, all these people are going to be without home and just think, look, look what happens with a refugee crisis with a war and how many problems that causes. Imagine not having any form of international protection. Um, so that, that is something that I'm hugely interested in. But at the moment, uh, my, my, pretty much my sole focus is going to be on wildlife trade and pandemics and just keep making sure that our projects um, at David Shepard Wildlife Foundation remain supported because essentially their work is fundamental. Absolutely. And just sort of rewinding back to your time at Radley um, and uh, the years that you spent here, would you do anything differently? Yeah, I've, I've actually thought about this recently. Yes, I think it's, um, but I think it comes down to what mentality am I in? So when I was at Radley, there was so much I took advantage for. And if I was to go back as a 13 year old in that, you know, 14 year old in that headspace, I'd probably do the same thing all over again. If I was to go back in my current headspace, it would be to absolutely make the most of everything. You know, no longer would reading a history book be a burden. <laughs> you know, it would be a luxury. Um, but I think that that is, you know, that's something that has, you know, my interests have changed as I've grown up. Um, and I think this also taps back into the kind of the university thing about me not going to university. It took me a while to generate my interests. Um, so, you know, that in itself, I think, is an argument to, again, not always. Um, but that in itself is a reason to maybe second guess, at least think about why you shouldn't go to university because your interests do change and they do develop. And it's so much better to study something because you're interested in it than because you have to. No, I totally agree. It makes a lot of sense. Um, any more questions, please? Oh, hang on, we have got one on the chat now. Are you hopeful for the future? Yes. Yeah, The so, I mean, what I always come back to, and if there's one bit of advice I can give you, there's a podcast um, run by a girl called, um, who chaired the Paris Agreement. Her name is Christiana Figueres. Um, she has a podcast which is called um, Optimism and Outrage, I think. Um, and it's all about, you know, a lot of it is around the failures of the Paris Agreement, but it's also about optimism. And looking at it from a kind of policy perspective, the Paris Agreement, you know, with the US pulling out, you know, under the Trump era, they're actually now back in it, which is great. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of, lot of hurdles, but there's also a huge amount of optimism. And I think the way that I try and always associate, uh, try and convey this is, yes, look at the stats. The biological crisis is awful. Walk through London for three minutes and tell me you haven't seen 10 Teslas, electric cars. The change is so quick. And yes, there is such a long way to go. And yes, we are going to see devastating consequences unless we change. However, there are a few people and a few, few organizations who are really, really pushing this agenda um, in terms of trying to find a, a sustainable world. Um, and if we don't do it now, we are going to regret it for the rest of our lives. But there is a lot to be hopeful for. We as a humanity have the tools to fundamentally change the way that we live and interact with nature. Um, so I am hopeful, but it's going to take some big, bold decisions. Um, and we're all going to have to change the way that we live our lives, which is a scary prospect. Yes. And people like you fighting the fight as well. Um, so uh, another question here. 
have China modified their laws regarding wild animal consumption trade in any way in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, another good question. Um, so China gets an incredibly bad rep when it comes to the environment. So first and foremost, I just want to highlight that they're actually one of the most progressive and forward-thinking countries uh, when it comes to the environment. They invest more money in renewable energy than anyone else in the world. When it comes to wildlife trade, um, which is obviously something that they have historically been really, really bad at, um, and I'm not taking you know, them off the hook, um, but they are looking at introducing a short list of um, a handful of species um, which will be able to be consumed um, and that handful of species will be a lot less than what we currently have in the UK. Um, again, there are China is a funny one because a lot of the information is restricted and that that has come through the international community. For example, when the WHO went in for the first time and Trump started calling this the Chinese virus, the first thing that China did was completely shut down their country to, to the international community. Um, but they are looks like they are having some really progressive steps. Um, and I think we've just got to kind of all rally together and acknowledge those steps. And there are a lot of issues still um, in China, um, but I don't think we should kind of be pointing the finger at them too much before we have the facts. Okay, thank you. And uh, just a final question from me, unless anybody else has got anything else they want to pop on the chat. Uh, this one's um, about your cycling for ranges trip, actually. What, um, what was the hardest part of the trip? Or, you know, was there a moment when you totally doubted what you were doing? Uh, a real kind of why? Why have I started this moment? Yeah, there were there were a few. I mean, as I said, I did this with um, with two other Radley boys and a Marlborough boy, and I mean, it was just typical us. Um, I can see Tom Riders on the call, so he'll know Charlie Rose, um, who is an asocial boy with me, um, and notoriously just kind of wings life. Um, and we didn't train at all um, for this trip, and we got up on day one. We started cycling, and our bikes were fifty five kilograms each. Um, so with all the camera equipment, with all the food, and you know. We were meant to be, we'd set out that we were going to do a minimum of 65K a day. And I think on our first day we did, I think we were 14K in and had to stop. And I think it was just that realisation is just like, you know, we've given all the big chat um, about doing this, you know, this trip and raising all this money and creating a documentary, but we haven't actually thought through the process of being able to complete it. Um, so that that first day, but the, yeah, there were a few times, you know, cycling, there was a few bits in the, um, in the little teaser, but, you know, times when you're cycling through national parks and you're kind of getting mock charged by a bull elephant or, you know, running out of food and, and water, you know, there were definitely part, yeah, all sorts of parts, which were, um, which were, were, weren't great, but it was a huge learning curve, but I'm still yeah. just as much of an idiot. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes you just got to go for it and you raised an immense amount of money for the Rangers. So uh, no, it's a great feat. So, well, that was absolutely fascinating, Theo. Thank you for taking the time out to talk to us today. Um, I've certainly learned a lot. Um, so thank you very, very much. Really appreciate it. Now, before you go, I'm going to mention the final Beyond Radley talk we have this week and the one that completes the programme of our talks from the Radleyan Society. It's this Friday at 4pm. and I know you've all been granted a lion by the warden, but if you manage to get out of bed by then, I can't think of anything better to do than to come along and listen to our talk by William Donaldson, who will talk about his career path in property and the wide variety of career paths open to you in the industry. And also what it's like working for Amazon right now in a time of immense growth. So thank you so much for attending this talk and thank you again to Theo and we hope to see you on Friday. Thank you very much and thank you Theo, bye-bye. 
Thank you for joining us. Check our channels for the latest news and events from the Radley and Society.